Psalms 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgression from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like the flowers of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, obedient to his spoken word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers that do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That was the word of God for the people of God. If I was ever appointed boss or ruler of the universe, one of the first things I would do after outlawing rutabaggers would be to eliminate summertime weather, maybe skipping from May 1st to October the 1st. And if you have birthdays or anniversaries, we can just realign those or reschedule those. But this, these hot days of summer are tough. These lazy, hazy, hot, humid days of summer. But it's camp meeting time, or it has traditionally been that, and we have observed it in some ways here at noon and first, not literally, not going back and doing all the historical stuff, but thinking about what an impact that had on our denomination and on the Christian faith for so many years, that the Word of God was proclaimed in outdoor arbors and in places that we would deem uncomfortable and unacceptable now. But they were a blessing to people back in the day. And uh, I'm glad that we have air conditioning and padded pews and that those of you who are at home have comfortable places to uh, hopefully sit and worship with us this day. Our camp meeting theme for this summer, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, best, based on Charles Wesley's best-known hymn, a hymn that's been called the National Anthem of Methodism. And in Methodist circles anyway, probably his best-known hymn. Now, outside of Methodist circles, he wrote a couple of hymns that most everyone knows. 
Hark the herald's angels sing, and Christ the Lord is risen today. Folks from all Christian traditions sing those, but this is sort of one of ours. It's in other hymnals and other traditions, but we claim it. And I want to say just a little bit now about this co-founder of Methodism, this Charles Wesley. We hear a lot about Brother John. We don't hear as much about Charles. He was the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. I believe there were 19 altogether, if you can even imagine. Born on December the 18th, 1707, in the little village of Epworth in England at age nine. He followed his older brother, Samuel and John, to Westminster School in London. And in 1726, he enrolled in Christ College at Oxford University. There he drew together a group of friends, and they were labeled the Holy Club. It was not always a compliment to be called that, but they observed the disciplines of the Christian faith so strictly that people began to call them the Holy Club, and they met together. They were later called Methodists because of their methodical approach to the things of the faith, the Christian faith. 1735, Charles was ordained a priest in the Church of England, and he joined up with General James Oglethorpe on his expedition to Georgia. He was a secretary to Oglethorpe. He was a chaplain at Fort Frederica on St. Simon's Island for a while. But after a very brief and a very stormy stint here, things didn't go so well for him, he returned to England. 1748, he married Sarah Gwynn in Wales. They had two sons and a daughter. The sons, Charles and Samuel, both were musical prodigies, and Samuel later became a Roman Catholic. Now, a fiery preacher, but a mediocre kind of organizer, Charles Sr. gave up the itineracy in 1756. He settled in Bristol, and about five years ago now, I think it was, Mickey and I were on the John Wesley Heritage Tour in England, and we were in Bristol, and we saw the place that was the home for Charles Wesley for, uh, for several years. It was uh, like a townhouse of sort, one level on top of another, a lot of stairs, and uh, pretty amazing to be in that home and realize that's where he actually lived. 1771, he returned to London. He lived there until his death in 1788. It's been said that one can sing the theology of John Wesley and the hymns of Charles Wesley. And so much of our theology and our faith across the years has been shaped by the hymns that we sing. Most of them biblically based. Some of them kind of slide off just a little bit. But between 1737 and 1742, John and Charles published six volumes of church hymns. If you can imagine that, six volumes. And there are currently about 75 Wesley hymns in our hymnal. You remember the hymnals there? coming back one of these days and we look forward to uh, to that time now the fourth stanza today is what we're going to look at oh four thousand tongues to sing this great charles wesley hymn there's an abundance of hope as well as some heavy duty wesleyan theology in this fourth stanza he breaks the power of canceled sin he sets the prisoner free his blood can make the foulest clean his blood availed for me Canceled sin. What does that mean? That's a curious kind of expression. It's not one we use all the time anymore. What does it mean? 
Could it be another way of saying that the past does not have to hold sway and does not necessarily determine our future? In his book, It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming, Tony Campolo, and some of you may have read some of his stuff. You may have been blessed to hear him somewhere along the way. I've heard him a few times. He's quite the character. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. He writes about people who go often to therapists and psychoanalysts and others for counseling, for therapy, year after year after year, but somehow they never seem to get any better. Things don't really change for them. And if you ask why, he writes, you might find the answer in the fact that social scientists have often tended to ignore the basic principles of the gospel. And then he continues by saying that counselors make the mistake of tracing all of our emotional and all of our psychological difficulties to things that happened in the past. They usually try to find out or figure out what happened or what was going on in somebody's background, and they use that to determine who they are now and where their lives are headed. Um, They're sure that humans are nothing more than socially conditioned creatures whose futures have been predetermined by our past. Now, does the past really determine who we are and what we are? Do childhood processes predestine our future? Are we nothing more, he asks, than Pavlovian dogs who've been conditioned to respond to particular stimuli in a particular manner? Are we simply products of our environment? of our past experiences and our conditioning. And then he says very emphatically, I think not. Furthermore, it's very important to recognize that the gospel does not affirm such a notion. It's just not who we are, he said. The Bible does not teach that the past determines our future. In fact, it teaches that the future influences our present. Where are we headed? Where are we going? What is our vision for the days to come? What are our hopes for our lives and the lives of those we love? And for the future of God's church, we look ahead and we are encouraged and it shapes our present. The believer of the Bible does not remain content by asking, where did I come from? For the Christian, the more important question is, where am I going? What does our future look like? What are our hopes? What are our dreams for the days to come? That shapes who we are, he says, much more than where we've been or where we've come from. The power of cancel sin, our past having such a hold on us. The hurts, the failures, the shortcomings, the blunders, the mistakes, the brokenness, the prejudice, the sin of days past. The power of cancel sin has been broken by the one who forgives us and the one who gives hope and the one who gives us a future. We begin with confession. And then there is repentance, a turning away from our sin and our brokenness, a turning back to God and back to the ways of God. Cancel sin being broken. The God who hears us, accepts us, forgives us, cancels out our sin and our mistakes and pardons us, cancels the debt that we owe, and breaks the power that canceled sin has on our lives sometimes to fill us with guilt and shame and to keep us from being who God has called us to be.
and I'm sorry. I hope you can hear me okay. It's, uh, it's going in and out. I do know. Confession and repentance. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. You heard that in the scripture less than a moment ago. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. But what about brothers and sisters and others in the church whose sins, whose mistakes have been canceled? Do our attitudes sometimes make it difficult for those persons to experience the power of God and the power of canceled sin? In his book titled Putting a Face on Grace, and it's a book that I've read a few times, and, and Mickey and I've led groups with it, and some of you may have read it, Richard Blackaby, a tremendous book. He said, grace is for sinners. God demonstrated best when God extended the gift of salvation and forgiveness to humanity, none of whom deserved it. To be like Christ, the church needs to be a redemptive community, not a place of judgment. The church ought to be a safe haven for repentant sinners. Sometimes God's church in places around the world has been a place of gossip and ridicule. And many transgressing Christians have felt forced to leave the church because they could not face the shame and the rebuke they would endure at the hands of their own people. But thankfully, he continues, there have been immeasurable times when sinners, when broken folks thought there was no place they could be accepted, no place they could be forgiven, no place they could get rid of all the garbage in their past, and then they come to a community of believers, to a church, and they are showered with love and grace. In other words, the power of canceled sin has been broken because folks were willing to share freely the grace that they had so freely received. We are vessels, yet the grace passes through us. It's not just something that stamps our ticket. Our eternal destiny is secure, so we're okay. But we're filled with the grace of God so that we might be graceful and gracious toward others. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. I've spoken often of one of my heroes of the faith, someone I've never known. I hope to meet him one of these days in the kingdom of heaven, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young German pastor and theologian who was imprisoned and later assassinated, hung by the Nazis for participating in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He died on April the 9th, 1945, just close, close, close to the end of the war, to being free, and what a blessing he would have been to Christianity across the years, but he died just before the war was over. And I found these words that he wrote. He wrote these words around Advent in 1943. He was in prison. And he said, a prison cell in which one waits does various unessential things and is completely dependent on the fact that freedom, that the door being open, has to be from the outside. And he said, that's not a bad picture of Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
who mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. Freedom with the coming of Christ. Even if the bars of our own sails are composed of anger and envy and fear, we cannot let ourselves out of our very own prisons. The door opens from the outside. We're helpless and we're powerless. And Jesus is the only liberator who can free us from the cells of our own making. The only one strong enough to break the chains that bind us to destructive words and attitudes and actions. If the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison, but he was free in Christ. The Apostle Paul spent years in prison, but Paul had a freedom of heart, a freedom that came from the Spirit of the living Christ, that all of the world's bars and chains could not conquer, could never subdue. He sets the prisoner free. And then we have to ask, is, is freedom really what we want? Why is it that so many released prisoners, it seems, do things that bring them back to prison once again? Freedom can be difficult. Responsibility is sometimes more difficult than jailhouse routines where everything is prescribed and set out for us. He sets the prisoner free. But what does he do to become our preferred option? His blood can make the is clean. His blood availed for me. Only the gift, the sacrificial gift of, of Jesus Christ can calm the desires of our hearts, fill the desires of our hearts. And for most folks, it's not an immediate experience. It's not just an overnight experience. It's a growing in grace, a sanctification. We're going to sing about that in a few minutes in another Wesley hymn. It's the name for the process by which he cleanses us and makes us whole. And it's not something we get in one exciting moment and then that's it. Freedom becomes a more attractive option because we're gaining the strength in Christ to make the right choices. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Atonement enters the vocabulary of the church as a distinctively Anglo-Saxon word from the 16th century. In Shakespeare, it meant literally the reconciliation of, of two parties or two persons, two estranged parties who are brought together in friendship when the hostilities begin to end. Atonement, or as sometimes it's broken down and said, at one month. The New Testament teaches this situation, keeps it in mind. It describes how God and humankind and how we're so often alienated from one another are brought together so that we might be God's people and know God's love. God's taken effective steps to make this estrangement. He's done so at great cost. Scripture speaks of the blood of Christ, talking about the sacrifice, all that he did for us, by which our sins are forgiven. And we have returned to harmony with our Creator and our Redeemer. And we can't do it on our own. His blood can make the foulest clean. Colossians, first Paul, first Colossians, Paul is describing the supremacy of Christ. Beautiful language there about who Jesus is. And if you've not read it recently, 
would encourage you to go back and look at it. Verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And in Ephesians 1.7, in him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. And these passages and elsewhere, there seems to be a thread that's apparent. The cost of human redemption is expensive and required a great gift on the part of our God. Sacrifice of an only son whose offering made an end of sin and estrangement and knocked down that barrier between humankind and sinful and God, the holy God and sinful humans. By this, Jesus affected atonement, at one month, bringing creator and creature together in this process of reconciliation. And when we are reconciled with God, then there is a call on our lives to be reconciled with one another, especially those who hurt us and anger us and make us fearful. We are called as reconciled people to be reconcilers, And heaven knows that can be a painful and tough thing to do. In another of his life-transforming hymns, Charles Wesley puts it like this. It's one of my favorite hymns. It's a Lenten hymn. We don't sing it often. The tune is a little difficult. It's crucified for you and me to bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record true. Ye all are bought with Jesus' blood. Pardon for all flows from his side. My Lord, my love. Is crucified. He breaks the power of canceled sin. There are several phrases in the dictionary that define that word cancel. Let me share just a few with you. Cancel means to destroy the force or the validity of something. It means to match in force or effort. To cancel each other out. Like the husband and wife who were going to vote for two different political candidates and they said we might as well stay home we're going to cancel each other's vote out cancel to remove equivalence on opposite sides of an equation cancel to invalidate for reuse but my favorite definition of the word cancel is this to cross out amen